Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for choosing us to fill a half hour of your time. And I hope you'll excuse me for having this inconvenient head call. It's kind of distracting for me. I hope it isn't distracting for you. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to get every episode of the podcast. You can do that at our website, thenexttrack.com, where you'll also find show notes and listener comments on each episode, and also an opportunity to get in touch with us via a contact form. This is episode number 109 of The Next Track. Today, we are really happy to welcome back James Jackson Toth. James, thank you so much for joining us again. It's great to see you. Oh, likewise. Thanks for having me back. James is a musician and journalist, and we interviewed him in episode 89, where he wrote about an experiment where he wanted to listen to just one album a week. And of course, it didn't last very long. We'll have a link in the show notes to episode 89. It's definitely worth checking out. But the reason we invited you this week is that you wrote an article that I wish I had written. It's called Perfect Sound for a Little Longer in Defense of the CD, and it's on thequietest.com. I wish I had written this because, you know, we've gone through all of this streaming is the best. Well, initially digital downloads are the best, and then streaming is the best, and, and wow, vinyl's so hip. And people have ignored the CD. What prompted you to do this now? I just felt like it was it was sort of uh, becoming the, the redheaded stepchild of the formats. And the more I talked to people, the more I found that they didn't really have a lot of reason for rejecting it. Like the thing I compare it to is, is interesting is like I feel like a lot of people of my generation and younger hate the Eagles unreservedly. And I do think there are reasons to, to dislike the Eagles. But I do feel like there is a certain group of people who only hate the Eagles because of that scene in The Big Lebowski. Like they're supposed to hate this band. They represent all that's evil, right? And I feel like with CDs, it's just this this sort of like immediate response. Like CDs, that's those are lame. Those are they're they're plastic and garbage and they sound bad. And it's like I don't feel like a lot of people really dig into why they think these things, because they don't sound bad and they're dirt cheap and they're available. Like what what else do you need? (laughs) Well, it's part of the industry trying to push us toward new formats and new devices you know, the whole planned obsolescence thing. And when you think about it, the CD came out, what, in the early to mid-1980s. It it really hit the peak of its popularity in the 90s. And it's been about 10 years. Well, it's only been 10 years, you know, since the iTunes store started with digital downloads, because prior to that, downloads were, they just didn't have much grip on people. But it had a long life, obviously not as long as the vinyl record, not as long as the shellac record. But the, the idea that now people are rejecting a format or a device or, or, or anything like that, rather than just adapting to what's new, I find that surprising. Yeah, it's a, it becomes an all or nothing kind of scenario. And like, I don't feel that way. Uh, I mean, I still buy vinyl out of habit. And, you know, it's, vinyl just, it's more seductive when you go to the store and there's like a beautiful gatefold, you know, vinyl record on the wall. It's definitely more seductive than you know, especially the way they're packaging CDs today, which we could have a whole episode about, about, you know, they all look like those cheap CMJ promos we all used to get in these little pockets. Like that's not, that's not enticing at all. So I do get it. And uh, I just think that it's this sort of knee jerk response to the CD is, is somehow being like lame or unfashionable or, or out or the worst of it is that they're like obsolete. Cause they're not, there's nothing about it that makes it obsolete. You know, most cars still have CD players. 
as you might know, at the end of, uh, of every show, we pick an album to recommend. And recently, I picked an album that I had to send away for from Amazon on CD. And I realized that it's the first time this year that I've purchased a CD. Over the years, I've been a pretty regular CD buyer. I think that uh, CDs are the pinnacle of quality. Anything supposedly better, I just, I just can't hear the difference. I like the convenience of streaming, the instant gratification for when I want to hear something. It's right there. But my preferred format for ownership, for archival purposes, is the CD. It's just given me pause to realize that I'm just not buying them as much as I used to. So maybe it is going away. No, I think it is. And I do think, but I feel like it's, it's been accelerated. And I think it's been accelerated, like you said, Kirk, it's a planned obsolescence. It's accelerated by design. And like I say in the article, like the, the idea that like Apple has something to gain from this is almost too obvious to mention, right? I mean, my laptop that I'm looking at right now doesn't have an optical drive for a CD. Like, why did that happen? You know, plenty of people still have to rip things. Plenty of people still burn things. I mean, this is it's not it's not like it's the Betamax situation where suddenly everyone just, you know, on Moss just flipped and changed over. So I think it is true that I, it is gradually going the way of the dodo. And maybe that's that's the way it should be. I just think that it's just very suspicious to me how quickly this is all happening. The optical drive thing is interesting. Same here. I don't have any optical drives on my computers. But it's almost as if Apple started including it not because of music CDs, but because software was being sold by download. Now, you can still buy some software on CD and DVD. You can buy Microsoft Office, I think. You can buy Adobe products. But most software has gone the way of the download. You know, Apple famously had this campaign, Rip, Mix, Burn, in the early days of the optical drive when the this was the second or third generation of the early iMac when it came with a CD drive. And, and I had the first model, it was the iMac DVSE that they called it, and it had a CD burner. And they were trying to convince people to buy this computer for music, but I don't know how many people actually used it for music back then. You needed the CD or DVD drive for your software, but music... You know, if people aren't buying music to start with, they're listening to the radio or they're streaming it now, maybe they just weren't using it even to rip CDs. Yeah, I guess that's possible. I just, I, I mean, I don't know if it's my age, but we've talked about this before. Like, I, I don't relate to the streaming thing at all. So for me, it's like, I want to, I want to, I want the multi-sensory tactile experience of owning a thing. And I've always bought vinyl, but like I say in the article, I'm finding vinyl an increasingly tough sell. So that really it's, it's a matter of like process of elimination. Now I buy more CDs now than I did in the nineties because you can go anywhere and get them. And I can hear, it's just a simple fact that I can just hear more. And for me, like sitting down with the booklet and a cover art to me is like, you know, like if streaming, if like, if like listening to a record or a CD is like a delicious plate of huevos rancheros or something, streaming to me is like a Taco Bell commercial. <laughs> like to me, the, 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 the experiences are completely different. So it's, it's not a, it's not a question of either or. You, you mentioned packaging earlier. I have only bought a few single CDs this year, and I think they were both by Bill Nelson, who's an artist I've been following since the 1980s, who releases editions of 500 of his CDs and and. It's buying them to support the artist. But the other CDs I bought recently are the re-release of John Fox's Metamatic, which is a three-CD box set. It comes with a big booklet and a bunch of art cards, one of which is signed. Brian Eno's Music for Installations, six CDs, a big booklet about his process. Or, you know, the Grateful Dead's Dave's Picks, which are always nice to have. And the only way you can get them is if you get a subscription or order them very quickly because they're limited editions. But other than that, 
Brad Meldow is my favorite jazz pianist, and he came out with an album a few weeks ago, and I'm like, I'm not going to buy the CD. I can stream it. I mean, it saves 12 pounds to not buy the CD. And, you know, a lot of this is economic. As much as, and, and as we talked on a, talked about on a recent episode, we love music and collect music. It's just gotten to the point where, you know, I'd rather spend that 12 pounds someplace else. If you buy an album you're going to listen to three times, that's awfully expensive per listen. Well, I think that's why the onus is on labels. Like all of those things you just spoke about, um, I'm familiar with the Dave's Picks series. I'm familiar with the Eno box set. Those things look beautiful. And I think labels like Dust to Digital, um, Light in the Attic, I mean, these are labels that actually do think about those those things and make you want to own it. So they're almost saying like, yeah, you could stream this, but look at this beautiful booklet. Look at the scholarship inside. Look at the, you know, even the artist credits. And I think those examples you gave are good ones. Um, like I just bought this VM Bot CD, um, who's an Indian slide guitar player. He did some work with Rai Cooter. And I just, I, to me, like I wanted to own that on CD uh, as opposed to vinyl because I didn't want to flip a side after 18 minutes. And I, and, and I don't think it's available on streaming. So to me, it was like $8. Of course I'll buy that. You know, so I do think there is definitely the onus on labels and artists to kind of make make the packaging more enticing. Um, there's no question. And like I said, it's very frustrating to me as a CD buyer that now a lot of the CDs just look like the promo CDs that we all threw away. You know? I mean, there's not even a spine on a lot of them. And they're they're just in there in a little folder. And it's it's really just ghastly looking, you know? Yeah. And then when you get to classical, there are all these big box sets of classical music where there's just these little thin cardboard sleeves. And you get a lot for your money. But in in many of these box sets, say it's got 50 discs, you get a little booklet, there's not a lot in it. In the bigger ones, there's, there's often a hardcover book, and it is quite luxurious. But in that sort of thing, each CD is kind of like just an element that isn't important. What's important is the, the, the consistency and the completion of the box set, and, and the individual CD isn't. But when you see that sort of approach to CDs that people have worked a year on or six months on, writing songs, rehearsing them, recording, mixing, etc. And then it comes out as just like some little beer mat. Um, <laughs> it's not very it, it's not very exciting. But what's the, what's the alternative? That every artist should release a CD that transcends the genre of the CD that is a limited edition or signed or whatever it is? That's a lot of work. And, and how many are you going to buy like that? Because we're assuming the signed limited edition is going to be more expensive. So they're asking for, let's say, at least as much as the vinyl, if not more. You know, what? what's the economy here if artists go that route? I mean, that's a good question. But I think that those box sets we're talking about are, are there to kind of to draw in the skeptics. Uh, I think there's still plenty of people my age and a little younger, a little older who will buy those beer mat things, Re maybe reluctantly, you know, maybe will groan about it. But I mean, I, I, I still buy them. And I, it's just I think it's more a rejection of streaming in general that I just, I, I don't think I'll ever really get on that, that horse. And I'm, I'm kind of finding myself less likely to buy vinyl now. So again, it's more just process of elimination. I don't think CDs are necessarily cool. I mean, I, I remember when brothers in arms came out like dire straits, that seemed to be the record everybody's dad owned. And it was the pinnacle of digital. And I mean, if that's the pinnacle of digital and like kind of blue is the pinnacle of, of vinyl then well i mean you, you know what i mean so and nothing against dire straits i like dire straits it just it, 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 it's an icky format you know cds are the leisure suit of music format <laughs> yeah, well, right <laughs> I, 
I'm curious to know what are what are your objections to streaming? Well, I mean, I can I can go any one of six ways of, of saying this. One thing I will say is I wrote this down earlier. Um, you know, just like anything else, uh, streaming is becoming competitive and proprietary. So I, I wrote this down because I don't stream anything. I don't stream television either. So I had to write this down. But if you want to watch Stranger Things, you need Netflix. If you want to watch Seinfeld or 30 Rock, you need Hulu. If you want to watch Thursday Night NFL, you need Amazon Prime. So this sort of like competitive balkanization is happening already. And I think it also happens on Tidal and Spotify too. And so I see more and more of that in the future to the point where I think to listen to the the solo work of all four Beatles, you're going to need four different subscriptions. I think that's absurd. And I think it's also inevitable. So that's just one, that's one argument against streaming. I mean, there's also sound quality and the experience itself, but I could go on for days. <laughs> to, to be fair, you, you get that siloization in video and you don't get it so much in music. The exclusives in music streaming are pretty rare and they don't last that long. It is really annoying in terms of streaming video to be able to find things. I mean, on the one hand, I think Apple mentioned last week that they've got 48 million tracks in on Apple Music. So we're getting up to some really astronomical numbers. If you look on Netflix, you're lucky to find a thousand movies. You know, with the windowing, the movie's in there for a few months, then it goes away, then it might come back. So you can't go back and see, you know, great film noir from the 50s, or you probably can't stream Citizen Kane or or if you can, you've got to find six different channels where you can do it. Whereas with music streaming, it's more of a smorgasbord where everything is there and you pick what you want. What, what I don't like about streaming music, even though I'm using it more and more, is the lack of engagement with the music. And we touched on this recently, the fact that you don't own the music, you don't treat it the same way. When you've paid for a record, and, and we discussed this in, in the last time you were on the show, I had mentioned that I had bought Brian Eno's NerveNet in the 1990s and I played it once and I hated it but I never got rid of it. And then years later, I realized what a masterpiece it was. With streaming, you'll never get that. You'll Even if you add something to your library, you'll end up culling it. You won't have this engagement. You won't have this commitment, this desire to appreciate the music that can only come over time. Right. And I, I do think that's one of the valid arguments against it. And I agree with you. I mean, I have a, a playlist on my iTunes that's like, to listen to now or to listen to sooner. And it's like, why, this becomes like a to-do list, like a chore. Whereas if I go out and buy a record or a CD, like the first thing I do when I get home is like I crack it open and I enjoy it. Um, as far as like the, your smorgasbord thing, I think it is that way now. And maybe I'm, I'm you know, uh, maybe I'm paranoid, but I, I think the hand that giveth taketh away. And I think at a certain point, they're going to have all of this stuff basically hostage, right? I mean, because they can charge whatever they want if, if, if people's playlists are going to go away. Whereas that VM bot CD will be here until my, my poor uh, next of kin have to find a way to get rid of it. Well, well, hopefully they'll check on Discogs to see how much it's worth, because things like that that aren't very common might be worth a little bit more than, than the average CD. One of the things about the CD that people tend to ignore, and this is in part because of the audiophile Nazis who say that the CD is crappy quality is that the CD is lossless. It's not compressed. Now, to be fair, I think most people would not be able to differentiate between a CD or a, a stream from Apple Music or Spotify or Tidal or any of those. But it's lossless audio, which gives you the option to rip it in a lossless format, in a compressed format. You have a lot more latitude with a CD and the quality is really good. Uh, I find it really interesting how many people criticize the CD saying it sucks 
because it doesn't. It's really good. And they're just comparing it to something that they like better, but not necessarily, that's not necessarily objectively better. Right. And I think that hits on exactly the problem. That, that I'm, it's, it's not like I'm, I mean, the article says in defense of CDs, and that's, that's sort of misleading because, I, again, I understand why someone would reject it. I just don't think people are rejecting it for the right reasons mm-hmm. um, because, like you say, they're lossless. I mean, they, if they objectively sound better. You can look at a waveform and, and tell that. I mean, now, Tidal does have a, have a, a hi-fi a lossless, uh, yeah. lossless option, um, but at the same time, it's just I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's the Eagles thing all over again where I feel like people, people hate it and they don't know why they hate it. And I agree with you that to the naked ear, a lot of the stuff is, is it's, it's a nominal difference. And I don't think I could tell the difference. Depending on the kind of music I'm listening to, you know, yeah. a, a 192 KBP versus a CD, like it would take really good speakers or really good headphones for me to tell you the difference. Kirk and I are old enough to remember a time when we had the radio, LPs, eight tracks, cassettes, reel to reel. And each of those five formats served a particular purpose and I, I don't remember there being much discussion about which was superior and if there was it was it was purely academic it seems today that there's this argument that one format is better than another but i think each format serves its own purpose what do you think is driving this attitude that one is better than all is this the music industry pushing this sort of zero sum attitude well isn't it part of the general polarization of society that we see in politics and in social media arguments that people are that they're sort of digging their heels in and staking out their claim for what they like yeah but i I also think that money is is a factor here because again like the companies like google and apple and youtube stand to gain a lot by eliminating the cd um, and again, I know that sounds conspiracy minded and I don't think it, it, it's been cooked up in this, you know, the core of the earth or with these supervillains. But I do think it's something that's too obvious to ignore is that, you know, they, they stand again. Whereas where you were talking about eight tracks and cassettes, the same labels were making all of those formats. And, and, and there wasn't this this com- this competition, basically. Well, with the exception of the home taping is killing music and all that, because people were making tapes of, of their albums. And and the eight track is objectively the worst format ever, other than the wire recording. Because I remember a friend of mine had an eight track in a, a Mercury that he had, and we would listen to Born to Run on it. It would be like, "Baby, we were born to kachunk run." You know how it would how it would flip, not at the right time between songs, but just randomly because it got to the end of the loop. So that was a pretty bad format. But again, it was practical. It makes you wonder why we'll have to do an episode on 8-track. Why did it become popular? Because it was pre-cassette, really. The cassette hadn't taken off at that time. And I guess you didn't have to rewind because it was a loop. It was a lot safer. It didn't damage as much and all that. Four sides. That was pretty strange. (laughs) Uh, But I think that that, uh, 8-track is to the cassette what Betamax was to VHS or laser. I think it was just like the, the, the technology that was just right before. And then it was immediately improved upon. Maybe not immediately, but relatively speaking, rel- you know, immediately improved upon. When we talked about vinyl recently, we talked about the tea ceremony. Was it Andy who came up with that yes. term, Doug? Yes. I think he said the tea ceremony of playing vinyl. Of You put the record on, you get the, the yellow cloth to wipe it off or the brush, and then you put the needle down. A couple of years ago, I bought a CD player to, to go in the stereo system that I have in my office because I wanted that tea ceremony of taking a CD out, putting it in the player, and sitting down and listening for an hour. The main reason I did this is because of all the classical box sets that I bought. 
100 CDs by Leonard Bernstein, 140 by Glenn Gould or whatever it is. And it's just too arduous to rip all that music. And you're not going to maybe listen to it all as often. But I found it interesting to go, because I hadn't played CDs for many years. I found it interesting to go back to playing CDs again. You know, this whole slow movement, like slow food and slow whatever. Well, I kind of had that feeling, you know, I guess this is what the vinyl fanatics think about, you know, the tea ceremony of vinyl. But there was something about the CD that kind of was relaxing in a way. You didn't have to worry about getting the needle in the groove. You didn't have to clean the CD as long as you're careful before when you put it back. Um, it was somehow reassuring that the old ways are still around. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think the convenience of the CD is one of its most underrated qualities. Because you know, if you're if you're cooking, I know I don't want to be flipping a vinyl side every 18 minutes, or you know, 74 minutes of CDs. And and I, I mean, even driving, like I have an iPod, and uh, you know, I could play music on my phone. And I find that like messing around with auxiliary ports and click wheels while driving seems very dangerous and way less convenient than just slipping a CD in the changer and listening to six albums in a row. So even that aspect of like, it's so convenient. It's like, I find it less convenient driving, you know, just for one, you know, one example, CDs are the best for the road trip, right? (laughs) Or tape deck. Well, they don't make many cars with CD players anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Um, we, We bought two new cars last year and neither of them have CD players. They both have Bluetooth. I was shocked by the number you cited in your article. You pointed out that um, by 2020, a third of new automobiles will still have CD players. And I'm like, it's more than that now? Well, because that's the installed base that still exists. No, no, no. This isn't the installed base. This is one third of new cars. And I'm guessing that car manufacturers are hesitant to pull a feature that they perceive helps sell cars. Yeah, but my friend Chaz in that article that I wrote uh, mentioned that like a lot of millennials and um, the the generation after millennials are inheriting family cars now. You know, they're not buying new cars. So they're getting their parents like Honda Civic from 98, 96. And of course, those things all have CD players. And I wonder if that's going to create this sort of, you know, I wouldn't say demand, but a certain desire for people to start buying these very inexpensive, you know, CDs. Of course, I don't know what kind of music they listen to. A lot of the music that post-millennials listen to probably doesn't exist on CD. But, yeah. but I think that could, we could see a change there, too. Well, maybe they're listening to the Eagles, but ironically. <laughs> I, right. I, 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 I will admit I like the Eagles. I mean, I grew up with that stuff in the 1970s. You know, the, the, it, it's kind of weird that their biggest album was Greatest Hits Volume 2, that it wasn't, you know, an album with a name, like an individual name. But that was a great album. And then Hotel California is arguably one of the best arranged songs of 1970s rock and roll. And the whole album is good. So anyway. I, I don't dislike the Eagles and I, I love Joe Walsh. So for Joe Walsh alone, as a latecomer, they get a pass for me for life. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of their stuff was indeed lame. But I, I, you know, I wish I had seen them live back then. It was impossible to get tickets. It's the kind of band that was always sold out. So the future of the CD, you know, we were talking about the future of the vinyl a few episodes ago, link in the show notes. What's the future of the CD? Are they going to continue? What I find interesting is that DVD audio never really took off. DVD audio gives you a longer duration. Super Audio CD, SACD never really took off. So the CD never, it's only been popular for standard lossless. It's not really been popular for... You know, on a DVD audio, you could put an entire opera instead of having to flip the discs. But I guess it just never caught on because 
why bother? It only costs 10 cents to make a CD. So you make three or four CDs instead of one. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the format stays are numbered. I, I don't think I'm, I'm not under any illusions about that. I think in my lifetime, it's going to be it's going to be like the senior week T-shirts at thrift stores where they're going to be everywhere, but no one wants them. Um, I'm not under any illusions about that. I just think that uh, it's a good time right now if you're interested in music and not interested in formats or not interested in, you know, uh, lining you know lining the coffers of apple to you know if you just want to get a great instant collection of music like you know i guarantee you could go to any goodwill right now and get like the collected works of i don't know uh you know alice in chains or the beatles the or you know whatever for like for pennies on the dollar and and to me I'm, I'm just if you're a music fan like how is that not a seductive you know thing i mean it seems like I, I want to go right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then you compare that to the sort of instant gratification of being able to just stream it on your iPhone or Android phone. The fact that you don't accumulate items because, you know, we, we accumulate items. Well, it's like I was saying earlier. I wanted to hear this T-Bone Walker record and I had to order it and, and, and wait for it. Whereas I'm used to almost instantly being able to access any album I can think of. But because of its format, I had to submit to the slow movement aspects of it. Yeah, and the tea ceremony is a great analogy because, I mean, I th I bet you probably had more fun listening to that T-Bone Walker record than the last five things you kind of just sort of checked out. On oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because in this case, it, it was something special. Yeah, and it's, it's probably nerdy to admit, but I think I'm among the right crowd here in your listenership. But, like, I like the ritual aspect of it. I like... You know, when I get a CD, like I'll, I'll also like I'll, I'll figure out where am I going to file this and I'll update my Discogs collection. And, you know, and uh, it's just it's part it's part of the fun for me. And again, I don't I don't expect everyone to to appreciate that or to relate to it. But um, but it's just it's something that I get a kick out of and I have for most of my life. So I expect, again, I pity my next of kin who have to shovel all this stuff out of a storage facility and figure out what to do with it. But. For me, it's it's great, and I just I, I want to endorse it. I want to endorse the tea ceremony, I guess. And the one thing we didn't mention previously, you mentioned in passing about the booklets and the liner notes, is that with a CD you have liner notes, and you have artwork is kind of small, but you see the personnel on the record, you see the names of the tracks, you see lyrics in many cases, but not all, and you might see a little bit of an essay and some photos, and that always adds. And, and it really annoys me that streaming hasn't yet picked up on that hasn't come out with the digital booklet, which you can get when you buy some music for download, but not for streaming. Now, of course, we have to remember that the way companies, technology companies plan ahead is that they make a whole list of the features and they say, we'll do this one this year and that one next year and that one the year after that to keep things looking new. So I think we will get to lossless streaming everywhere. We will get liner notes but by that time, will anyone care? Will anyone miss the liner notes if they don't get them? It, it's just people are just living music differently, living recorded music differently. And, you know, we just can't change it. We can fight. We can, you know, choose a hill to die on for the CD or the USB stick or whatever. But progress is relentless. Yeah, and I, I think that, that there is going to be metadata. And I think you bring up an important point about, like, the people who, who get that in five years won't care because they'll have grown up not, why do I care who engineered this record? Why do I care who's thanked on it? I don't care what their wives' names are, you know? 
uh, I still care about all that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I love in the in the metal metal albums, like in the thank yous, they would always everybody would always have have an epithet. Like they'd be like, you know, thanks to Don, we left it in the truck, Smith. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what's the story behind that? You know, like you know, Bill, we'll get you next time, Johnson. I just I love that stuff, and I, and I feel like in a lot of ways I'm a student of that stuff as a person who makes records too. Um, I'm always thinking about that stuff, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, was it? I, I don't think it was. Was it Francis Scott Key or somebody was up in arms about sheet music? Do you remember that? Or no, it was John Philip Sousa yeah. who was up in arms about the fact that they were distributing, uh, you know, sheet music. Like this is going to destroy our our livelihood. So yeah, you're right. No one ever fought progress and won. And you know, these are this is just the way the winds are blowing. And I think it would be a, sort of a misrepresentation for me to say that I'm adamantly saying you need to all buy CDs and the streaming is garbage. You know, I just, it's just my opinion, but I do think that if I can entice just a few people to go to a thrift store and, and pick up, like you say, the collected work of the Beatles or something and be like, wow, I just spent $11 and look at all this music. I mean, at a certain point you have to ask yourself, is it music that you really care about or is it trophies and convenience? You know, I, I don't know. All right. Well, this has been really interesting. Thanks, James, for joining us again. We we are going to listen to CDs. Maybe not as much, but we're still going to listen to some. Yep. Me too. <laughs> okay. I hope we can have you back on the show again soon. Take care. Indeed. Thanks. thanks. Now comes the time. As we do every week, we present our next tracks. Kirk? I feel a bit guilty that my next track choice this week is not on a CD after all we just said, but I came across an album that I wanted to check out on Apple Music. It is simply called Bach by Thomas Dunford. He plays on Arch Lute, which is sort of a cross between a lute and a theorbo. If you don't know what a theorbo is, look it up. It's like a lute with a fishing pole attached to it. He plays Bach's Cello Suite Number no. 1 in an arrangement that he made. He plays the BWV 995 Suite in G minor, which Bach arranged from his cello suite number five for lute. And he plays the Chacon from the second partita, which many people have played on lute, guitar, etc. Particularly, I think Narcisco Yepes had a wonderful recording of that on the 10 string guitar he played. In any case, what stood out to me when I saw this album was the name. I happen to have known Jonathan Dunford, who is Thomas Dunford's father, back when I was living in France. Jonathan Dunford plays viola da gamba. And I played viola de gamba for a short time, and I was in correspondence with him, and I met him once in Paris. He's a wonderful guy. And I knew that his son was a lutenist, and I met him once, I guess, when he was 10 years old at his apartment. And I had seen his name as an accompanist on some records on Hyperion, where he accompanies a singer named Yiston Davies. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that Welsh name correctly. And it's good to see a musician who's come up the ranks like that to have a solo record of his own. This is on Alpha Classics, which is, I think it's a Belgian label. I sampled it a little bit. It sounds great. I love box lute works. And, and one of my earliest next track picks was a recording of some Bach lute works. So I'm looking forward to giving this a listen. Doug, do you have a CD that you're going to be listening to? No, not a CD this week. But interestingly, I heard a song on Radio France that I liked. I shazammed it, found the album on Apple Music, and in less than a minute, I was listening to it in my living room. Try doing something like that in 1974. So this album is by a band called, and I hope I'm saying this right, Dallandeo. They are a six-piece jazz group. Jazz can mean almost anything, right? They are based in, I believe, Finland. The name of the album is called Kalio. They play a wonderful mix of Brazilian jazz, bebop, surf music, 
a touch of electronica. By golly, they even use a theremin. Now, in, in fact, every song on this album sounds like it's from the soundtrack of a movie smuggled out of Czechoslovakia in the early 60s. It's got this Eastern European aesthetic fused with jazzy South American rhythms. It even sounds like they used retro recording techniques. I'm, I'm really crazy about it. I couldn't find a lot of information about them. Again, they're called Dalindeo. They are led by a Finnish guitar player named, I'll attempt this, Valtteri Loro Pohonen. I think that's right. Who has also done a, a similar sort of thing with a larger 16-piece band called the Ricky Tick Bag Band. So they might be worth checking out, too. Anyway, this was a lot of fun to listen to. If you have a chance, give it a listen. It's a lot of fun. Dalindeo, Kalio is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.